Well, good morning, and it's <clears throat> good to be here worshiping with you again this morning. After being gone the last two Sundays, I, uh, I again just have a deeper appreciation, and I, I truly enjoy coming together on, on Sunday mornings. Two weeks ago, we were at the ADC assembly, and that was a rich time of sound teaching and fellowship with other pastors, and I would just like to thank each of you for making that possible for us as a pastoral team to be there, uh, to be part of that annual event. And at some point, I want to give you a bit more of an update on some of the developments with ADC, but that's not for this morning. And then on Tuesday after that, we, my wife and I flew to Kansas for my mom's 90th birthday, which was on Wednesday. And so able to spend time with her over that time, uh, over her birthday, had a good time with her and the rest of the family. Then later in the week, uh, the rest of my family joined us. And on Sunday afternoon, we had a birthday open house for her. And mom thoroughly enjoyed every aspect of that. Uh, all the grandchildren, all the family was there except for one granddaughter and her husband. Um, and more than 130 people stopped by to wish her well. And she just loved every minute of that. And uh, so that was, it was fun to just simply be a part of that and to celebrate her while she's still here. And then we, we returned home this past Monday. We'll be resuming our study in Philippians this morning, like has been mentioned. Chapter 4, <clears throat> last evening when Simon called and asked if we could have the anointing for him, he was uh, expressing some of these sentiments about these verses. I didn't bother telling him that that was the text for this morning's message. I was like, I'll just let him talk and see what he has to say. And, um, but I do find it interesting that that literally is what I want to be focusing on this morning. And I trust that I can do justice uh, to this loaded text. <clears throat> just a bit of a reminder, Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia or Greece and is the location of the first European church a kind of a small town, about two miles square, uh, with probably less than 10,000 people there. There's no Jewish synagogue or, uh, and, a, and very few Jews even. But Paul seems to have a, developed a unique bond with this group of believers as this letter reflects, as you read through it. He was encouraging them. And we see that joy just coming through again and again in the gospel. He's focusing on and emphasizing the power of Jesus Christ in the gospel, and which that's the reason we can have the joy. And then in chapter 2, he painted a beautiful picture of selfless humility of Jesus, giving several examples of that. And then in chapter 3, he emphasized the importance of the one thing that he lives for. And that is... And there's only one thing, and that is to know Jesus Christ and to know him more and more. We can never quit learning to know who Jesus is and never wanting to stop growing closer to him. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first nine verses of chapter four. I've entitled this morning's message, um, Authentic Christian Character. And uh, this was not an easy sermon to title, given the um, range of topics that we see in these few verses. 
But I do believe that that captures the essence of what Paul is wanting to communicate here. The first couple of verses are about, a, about relationships. It's unique, this letter is unique in that Paul is primarily encouraging the Philippians. He's not, it's not a letter of rebuke or correction like a lot of the other epistles that he wrote. In verses 2 and 3, we have one of Paul's mildest corrections recorded in Scripture. And apparently there was an ongoing conflict between two sisters in the church at Philippi. Um, read the first three verses here. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 1 could be or might be a part of chapter 3 yet if you really read it, but he's just re-emphasizing the importance and the value he puts on that con personal connection and relationship with his church and encouraging them to stand firm, to remain faithful, to not deviate, to not compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then Paul urges these two women to resolve their differences. And he gives very little context and very few, really no facts around this, or very few facts. What do we know from the text? There's two women in the church of Philippi. There's a disagreement about something, and they labored alongside Paul. That's about the extent of what we know. Now, from that, there's a number of things we can infer. And so this is, you know, it's going beyond the text, but I don't think it's uh, going beyond uh, what is likely uh, going on here. So apparently there's an ongoing disagreement, something that may have been brought to attention or probably was brought to Paul's attention by Epaphroditus. Back in chapter 1, we saw how he came from Philippi and was updating Paul on some of the stuff going on in their church. What I find perhaps the most intriguing is that Paul does not side with either one of these women. He doesn't take sides. He just simply says they both have responsibility in resolving this difference, these differences. There's a disagreement, and he says, work it out. Another thing that I think we can conclude is that I don't believe this disagreement was theological, doctrinal, or moral, in that Paul does not hesitate to take action, to rebuke, to correct, and to set straight, and to take sides when it comes to those kinds of issues. But here he's not doing that. And so likely this is more of a personality conflict uh, type of issue. But resolution is important because it does hinder the testimony of Jesus within the community, the church and within the community. It's not healthy for the church. As I think about this, you know, conflicts and disagreements simply come up pretty much anywhere where there's people, there will be conflicts. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And I think this is just a good pattern that we should resolve those conflicts. 
And what I find is that most times, or almost always I should say, these kinds of conflicts or these disagreements will require forgiveness for resolution. One, or probably both, were hurt by something that happened and they blamed the other person. So who's right, who's wrong? But there has to be a willingness to come to a point to completely forgive and lay aside that expectation of the other person making it right and just being willing to do this, surrendering it in full faith, surrendering it to the Lord and saying that the blame or the fault will let God work out in the end. I think that's just a good practical lesson for us um, today, even though it's not directed directly to us. But then there's interesting in verse 3, Paul asks someone else to help. The ESV uses the term true companion, King James, true yoke fellow. There's other variations of this as well in other translations. The Greek word that's translated companion or yoke fellow is syzygous. And it means, it means companion or yoke fellow. That's an accurate translation. However, there is some disagreement among scholars whether this was actually a proper noun, meaning the name of an actual person. And the reason translators conclude, don't translate it that way generally, is because there's not record of anyone else by that kind of, that name in Greek history. So they don't know whether it was an actual name or not. What I think is clear is that Paul is referring to a specific person. Paul knows who that is, the Philippian believers, the Philippian church knows who he's referring to. He's calling on this person to help out in this situation. Whether it's his actual, his or her actual name or not, we don't know. But he is calling on this person to help resolve this issue. What's interesting then at the end of verse 3, he also affirms with confidence that these whom he references, including Clement and others, which probably include the women, these two women and this other person, he references that they all have their names in the book of life. So it's not like this is a salvation issue, that, but these are people that he has confidence in, that they want to and have been walking with the Lord. <clears throat> so Paul now transitions in verse 4 through 9, and while this feels like a different subject, I think it still applies somewhat to this disagreement, or it, it certainly can, between these sisters and also the entire church. And he's beginning to wrap up the, this letter with these five descriptive verses of character qualities that are to be found in transformed believers. What I find interesting is that these are not characteristics that can be imitated simply with willpower or can be conjured up from just a determination to do, but they come through the filling and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in a life that is surrendered to Jesus Christ. This is not something that we can just do, that we can do in our own strength. 
it's not so much what we do, but it, it comes down to who we are in Christ that enables us to live this kind of a life. There's almost everything in these next five verses that run counter to human tendencies, our human nature, our what, what we naturally do. I'll read these verses at this time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Just quickly walking down through these numerous commands, instructions. The first one, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, rejoice. It's rejoicing in the Lord. The joy is not in our circumstances. And I think that, that is one of the key differences here. It's not rejoicing in circumstances, but it's rejoicing in the Lord. It is a joy that's rooted in our relationship with Jesus Christ that comes out of knowing Jesus intimately, as we saw in chapter 3. It's a joy that emanates from believers because of the transformative work of, the, of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's not a superficial or a fake or an artificial happiness, but it's a deep and genuine emotion that comes out of knowing who Jesus is. The Christian life is not gloomy. And we can have deep joy and even happiness in the midst of the most difficult challenges we face. Paul was literally in prison when he wrote these words. And I believe that he meant every word of it. He genuinely was rejoicing in the Lord. The shift is rejoicing in the Lord requires us to focus on Jesus, not on ourselves or our circumstances. And that's what's, what doesn't come natural for us, what's not easy for us. Let your reasonableness or moderation be known to all men. In studying this, I discovered that there is not an English word or a phrase, and for that matter, not even a Latin word or phrase, that adequately captures the essence of what the Greek word that Paul uses here means. And I will try to express a little bit. It's not that the idea of gentleness, reasonableness, and moderation is certainly one aspect. That is not an incorrect translation, but it, it's more than that. It's so much more than that. It carries the sense of yielding one's legal rights from a position of nobility. Now just think about that. It's 
it's surrendering or yielding one's legal rights from a position of nobility. Jesus Christ's character in chapter 2, we saw how he was humble, how, how he came down from heaven and gave up everything, gives a sense of what Paul is communicating here that ought to be true of all believers. Jesus certainly was, was a gentle and kind and patient. He was more than fair. He was all these kinds of things. But the, the sense of nobility that comes with this as well, it's not a yieldedness in the sense of a slave or of an inferior person, where you're put into a position that you have to do something. But it's, it's, it's coming at it from a superior, uh, of a superior in a noble and generous spirit. It's not out of compulsion, but it's out of want to and out of love that one does this, one yields. A Christian has high nobility as a child of a king. While we also notice and consider the weak and the needy around us and the utter pitifulness of the haughty and the most tyrannical people we come in contact with, but it's a willingness then to joyfully surrender our rights that we have as nobility for the sake of those that are not yet part of the kingdom of God. And so this idea of gentleness or, um, or reasonableness is so much more than just being easy to get along with and so forth, but it's, it's about willingly surrendering that the, the rights that we do have a Christian has the purest and noblest grace, and it's difficult to resist. And it's that spirit, that heart of grace, yieldedness, and reasonableness that should radiate out of our joyful hearts. The phrase, the Lord is at hand, can apply to the idea of yieldedness, or it might be referring to the next phrase about being anxious about nothing. Either way, it's a true and reassuring statement, a good reminder, the Lord is with us, right beside us. He's not abandoned us. He's, he's not going to leave us. The nearness of God enables us to yield, to be uh, reasonable, and not to be anxious or worry. Don't be anxious or worry. This is the only negative statement. It's the only don't in this series of verses. And as I studied this, it became, I think it's increasingly clear that worry or anxiety or anxiousness is likely the biggest barrier to any of the other qualities that are listed in these five verses. Anxiousness and worry robs us of the joy of the Lord. It keeps us from the yieldness and surrender. It's, it's anxiety has, has a way of hindering our prayers and blocking the peace of God in our lives. And so I think that this really is central to the entire discussion here. <clears throat> I hadn't really thought about it. But when I was in Greece, I did think about it and thinking about it since. In the Greek pagan world, 
anxiety and worry was a huge issue. Just think about it. The mythological Greek gods were unpredictable and frequently at odds with even each other. And so there was this constant question in the mind of the pagans whether they were doing something that might displease their gods, fearing that they had done so or that they might. And so they lived on this edge, this anxiety, this anxiousness all the time. They lived in constant fear of condemnation, not knowing whether the gods were pleased or had or not. And, and so it, it just led to this spiral of worry and anxiousness. And as believers, that is certainly not true of us. We have a trustworthy and a loving God. He cares for us. He loves us. And he sent us his son, to redeem us and to bring us into his kingdom. If we stop and think about it, we really have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about, nothing to be anxious about because he is good. We don't understand everything and we won't, but we do know that Almighty God is in control and we can trust him. We can't control circumstances, we can't control what other people do or don't do, but we do control how we respond to that and whether we allow it to create that worry and anxiety. And Satan's going to continue to tempt us with these feelings of worry and fear because he wants us to take our eyes off God and to focus on ourselves and those things that we don't know. Prayer. Supplication with thanksgiving. Rather than worrying and becoming tied in a knot with anxiousness and anxiety, Paul states that the remedy for this is prayer. It includes requests, supplication, but it's more than that. It's supplication with thanksgiving. It's bringing our requests with thankfulness. I had to think back of an old contemporary Christian song, Morgan Cryer, Give Me This, I Want That, Bless me, Lord, I pray. It's not that kind of a mindset. Although, you know, if we're really honest, is that not almost how we tend to approach prayer? Do we see God as a vending machine? Prayer should be based in adoration for who God is and a desire to know him more fully. Our so-called needs may change as we focus on and we see the magnificence and the glory of God more clearly. Prayer is a way in which we express our deepest feelings to God and trusting him to answer in, what, in, a, in the way that is best. It's not to get what we want but it's rather surrendering and putting complete trust that he will give us what we really need. Then he goes on, the peace of God will guard our hearts. Lenski states eloquently, the peace of God is to be taken objectively. The condition of shalom by God's act, all is well with us. 
God creates and he bestows this peace. And this peace will stand over our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, like a guard or a sentry to avoid disturbance. And that peace is a gift from God. It's not, not something we develop. It's not something we do. But it is fully and only something that God gives us. And that's such a contrast, again, to how the pagan gods function. God, out of his love for us, brings, acts to bring shalom or peace into a world full of anxiety and worry. Paul states that this peace passes, surpasses all understanding. I don't believe he's saying that it's incomprehensible or beyond our comprehension, because we can feel it. We, we know what God's peace is. But what he's saying is that there is nothing man can do. We can't fixate our mind on something or quit worrying or keep thinking about certain things. We can't make ourselves and, and bring a peace. He's rather... He's reiterating that the peace of God is a gift in Jesus Christ. It's something that can't be understood or comprehended apart from Jesus himself. Then he goes into this list of six things that we are to think about or to be our filter by which we, our thoughts should filter. Whatever or whatsoever leaves little wiggle room for stray thoughts it's a comprehensive list here, in a way, of, of what, what these things are. And I, I think that these align with uh, three pairs of two, and so we're going to take these two at a time. The true and honorable, or honest. We're to think about things that are spiritually true and real. Only truth stands now and always. And truth should be revered, respected, and honored because it is true. Liars, on the other hand, will sneer at, ignore, refuse to respect or honor that which is true. A big contrast there. Just and pure. Thinking about these things, those things that are just or right or righteous, and pure add another aspect. Those are the things we are to focus on. Remember, God is a perfect judge. He's perfectly just and righteous. Righteous or just things must naturally be pure, um, which means simply without the stain of sin or error. Anything else is in unclean and impure. Thinking what is, about what is just, right, and pure, is, again, is all-encompassing. Those things that are free of sin. And then lovely and commendable, or good report, as the King James uses. We're to think about or dwell on those things that are positive, lovely, commendable. We're all capable of finding those things that we don't like or care for in a particular situation or person. But I think Paul is instructing us that we should look for and focus on those things that are good. It doesn't negate the imperfections. But when we focus on the lovely, the warts simply fade in prominence because we're not fixated on them. 
things excellent and worthy of praise. Good and worthy things are to occupy all our thinking. Paul is not attempting to make a list of do's and don'ts here, but he's focusing on a few timeless principles through which the Philippian believers can filter all their thoughts and their behavior. And I, what I love is that these principles hold true for us today. And then he concludes with practice these things. The admonition of keep doing these things, don't stop, practice, live out, put to use these things that he's listed here, that he's covering here in these several verses. He has that those things that are learned and received. Paul had invested significant time and energy teaching the Philippians, and they received it. So they learned and received. This idea of learned and received is something that they took responsibility for. They took ownership of. They learned. They invested in allowing themselves to be instructed, to ask questions, to sort through the things presented to them. And then they received not only did they learn from what Paul and other believers, they received it, they absorbed it, they put it into practice. They applied it and found ways to actually live it out. So they learned and received, making these beliefs their own. They adopted these, this set of beliefs for themselves. And then he also says, and heard and seen in me. Paul exemplified these things in his own life as well. They had heard and seen how Paul lived while he was in Philippi. But even beyond that, he had a reputation that was widely known. And he was not afraid to ask others to live the way that he did. Not out of pride, but simply as an example for others to follow. And that's a challenge for me. You know, can I truthfully say, do what I do. Follow me. Follow my example. Um, Paul certainly was not afraid to do that, and he was not um, he was not doing so for the wrong reason. And he wraps up this instruction with the simple statement that the God of peace will be with you. Notice the flipping of words from verse 7. Instead of the peace of God, Paul now declares that the very God of this peace, or shalom, be with us. The God who bestows the peace with its power, that very source of this shalom is promising to be with us, to be with you. God is the source of the peace, and so it's no wonder that it is so powerful in guarding and protecting the, our very hearts and thoughts. God will be with you. When we surrender our lives, our thoughts, our minds, our hearts to Almighty God and allow Him to control that, He is near. He brings peace. He is with us. In conclusion, I just want to read this text again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's stand together for benediction. Father, thank you for this encouragement from the Apostle Paul to the believers in Philippi 2,000 years ago. Such rich admonition, encouragement, and promise contained in these verses. I just pray as we go from here that we, that you bring these verses to our mind again and again. Remind us of their significance. And I just pray that you would empower us with your spirit to be free of anxiety, of anxiousness, of worry and fear, but rather that your peace would so encompass us that we would look to you as a source of of that peace and bring clarity to our thinking and just transform our, our minds and our hearts in ways that honor you and point others right back to you. We thank you for for this, these promises, these verses, and I just ask that you would direct our step, each one of us, as we go our separate ways. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.